Hello, and welcome to the Burning Cold Theater's podcast series, Into the Fire with Jerome Davis. Hi, this is Jerome Davis. I'm the Artistic Director of Burning Coal Theatre Company, and I'd like to welcome everyone to Into the Fire, the Burning Coal Theatre Company podcast series on all things theatrical. Today we have a special guest, Adrian Rice, who teaches at Appalachian State University in Boone and is from Ireland, is from just north of Belfast, and is here today to speak to us about um, Irish literature in general, but specifically about the work of Connor McPherson. Uh, Adrian, welcome. Uh, good to be here, Joe. So tell me, uh, how long have you been in the States? I came over to Rome in 1999, um, just for five weeks initially on the uh, U.S. Ireland Exchange Residency Bursary. There's a title for you. And... Uh, you know, the groups over here and the arts councils back home get together and send a poet and a playwright and maybe an artist, a sculptor. They send a few of us over, you know, to do these short residencies. And normally you go to the likes of uh, Harvard or Yale, somewhere like that. But uh, I strangely got sent to Lenoran College, Hickory, North Carolina. <laughs> In Hickory, Sure. And, uh, you know, my friends at home, my writer friends at home, or my other friends, you know, when you would meet them in the pub and they would say, where is it you're going again? And I would tell them, you know, <laughs> when they had a few jars in them, a la the weir, it would become, you're going to hick early. <laughs> right. Uh, so that was and, uh, and it must have seemed like an exotic, uh, exotic place for them. Uh, uh, how long were you there? How long were you at Lenore Ryan? I was there initially based in their guest house, based at the college for five weeks. But the community, um, you know, any part of the community, you know, at risk groups, uh, all kinds of stages of schools, local community groups, uh, arts, theater groups, they were allowed to, you know, put in a form to kind of book me to come and talk to them about my own poetry and about, you know, Irish literature in general. And, so that ended up, I was only meant to do a couple of sessions a week, you know, and spend time during doing my own work and have my own experiences. But once you opened your kind of Belfast mouth and you had a story to tell, I was kind of doing two and three things a day for five weeks. It was kind of, it was kind of exhausting. But um, I met my wife after four days, my beautiful American wife, Molly. And uh, that's the real reason, obviously, that I was meant to be in Hickory. But... Um, she followed me back home the next year. Um, by the way, she's actually last year, I think, North Carolina State Theatre Teacher of the Year. She's a high school theatre teacher. Oh, lovely. Yeah, but she uh, she followed me back the following summer, and we stayed in Ireland for five years working freelance together, poetry and drama, doing right. piecework, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then LR brought me back for six months, and then at the end of that six months, in 2005, a long story but basically the local community wouldn't let me go home and <laughs> nice. still here 14 years later that's terrific that's really terrific um, how long have you been at app state app state I, I was happy I, I did several years as an adjunct forum at lr and then several years happily at night working for catawba valley community college and then a man who i've become very friendly with and his wife uh 
Dr. Woodrow Trayson and his wife Dorothy McGuire. Um, he got to know my work and uh, he just said, listen, I've heard that you lost your doctorate many years ago. That's another story. It was stolen from me, Jerome. Uh, way back, it's a long story before the internet. And I just said, yeah, but you know, poet's my thing. You know, I've got the master's anyway. I don't need a doctorate. And he said, no, you do. You need to be full time here. So he brought, he taught me in the Gondi app and uh, got me on the, applied for the doctoral program. And then I started doing uh, work in his MA forum and his reading program. And then the first year seminar, people snapped me up, you know. So I've been there probably about, I think it must be the fourth year connected with the Appalachian. It's a really dynamic community up there, especially for a small community uh, where the arts are concerned and literature. Is that is that been your experience there? It has been, you know. Um, obviously, when you, my first couple of years were doing those heavy doctoral classes at night and you know, you didn't really get a chance to mix much on the campus at all. But since the last couple of years doing the first-year seminar teaching and being there a couple of days a week during the day, yeah, I've got, I've got to see, you know, more of the visiting writers. And, of course, I'm a Press 53 from Winston-Salem, so the likes of, you know, the Export Laureate, Joseph Belfonte, people like that, Catherine Kirkpatrick, uh, writers that I know, you know, they're part of the English department, so I've got to see them on and off as well. So... It is. It's, it's a vibrant community. I think if I lived in Bern or closer to Bern, you know, Hickory's in Norway or, or down in the mountain, um, I think I would get a lot more benefit from it. But right. I certainly, part of my job is recommending my first-year seminar students to go to all the arts events they possibly can, you know. That's good. Tell me about uh, about your... Uh, so you, you are, are fond of uh, Connor McPherson, as a playwright, as as I am, uh, can you tell me about your first experience with his works? You know, to be honest, I, I forget which one that I saw. I, I should have went into this, Joan, before you called. Um, I forget which one I saw. My wife and I saw one, in, I'm pretty sure, in Belfast at the Lyric Theatre. And I thought it was the weir, but it, it definitely wasn't the weir. Uh, okay. I, I'm sorry not to be able to. I should have double-checked that for you. No, that's fine. Uh, that's fine. Uh, do you remember the first impression of his works? The first impression is very much, you know, to be honest, the, the wheel even gives that away again for me. It's it's very real. Um, it's kind of, you can see the old Paddy Kavanaugh influences coming through, the kind of great hunger, um, especially in the wheel, you know, the dealing with rural figures, um, a lot of rural bachelor figures even, uh, okay. you know, who, who end up being... You know, the kind of ghost in their life is the, is the very obvious one of loneliness. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's got a real, he's got the southern rural tongue going on in the stuff that I've read and kind of nails that really well, you know. I remember reading uh, recently um, that someone had a statistic about the films that Hollywood had put out uh, in the 21st century and there were, you know, several hundred of them and and yeah. uh, the, then the uh, st statistician pointed out that some ridiculously small number, like 16 out of 900, were actually about um, lower class people or poor people, you know, the, that, yeah. that almost all the others are either fantasies, you know, about people who don't have to work for a living or, right. or uh, uh, fantasies about people who do. But uh, 
you yeah. know have have it made and so um so it seems like our, in Ireland that has never been the case uh, if you go back to O'Casey or Singh or uh, any of the the early uh, Irish writers they did tend to look at the the lower classes as as a baseline. Why do, do you is is that your experience? And if so, why why do you think that is? It really is. If you even think about, you've got me thinking about the North, obviously, you know, which I would know best. Right. And, uh, you know, you only have to look at the famous players from the likes of Graham Reid. You know, I mean, like they are the Billy players in particular. You know, where, where they're just absolutely raw from the working class troubled area. You know, then you think of somebody even from where I come from. Actually, it's kind of very bizarre that, you know, two serious literary figures have come from that cool housing estate. I would be the poet that, that people would talk about back home, but there's Gary Mitchell, the playwright. He also comes from Rathcool, just a slightly different bit of Rathcool than me. Sure. Uh, he's famous for engaging with, you know, the very background that Gary and I would have come from, which is the streets of... Oh. Yeah. So, um, I, I think you're not going to get away. I think if, if I could put it like this, you're not going to get away, especially in the North, I would imagine in the South too, with getting too hoity-toity in your subject matter or with too many hoity-toity characters. Right. You're going to have to keep it real. Um, and it actually makes me think of, you know, in the poetry scene, you know, the one I'd be obviously more familiar with, um, you know, even there, you know, I, I've mixed with a lot of poets who are very suspicious, even when some of our more famous poets, you know, write poems drawn from Homer or something like that. You know, they tend to just roll their eyes in their head and say, oh, there's so-and-so with another, you know, classical reference in his work or whatever. Um, and even the work I'm trying to do, the work I'm working on now, Jerome, is it's, uh, it's like a kind of an autobiography in verse. And, it's really, I've been drawn back to that Belfast, Rathville Street childhood and teenage years and mm -hmm. what we've fought against so long about writing about being in exile, if you like, in a way. I mean, I'm just being forced to write about it. And out of all the stuff that you've written, people are latching on to the early poems from that sequence that I've already published in some, some books, including the recent one. Um, and they're really latching on to that sequence and saying that's what's going to define you. That's what we're really interested in, in seeing you finish. In fact, not to take too much time, but when I did a radio interview with Irina um, and Sean Rocks, the actors, you know, down in Dublin, it's a great show. And they right. put me on when I'm home with a new book. And I had, uh, it was The Clock Flower a few years ago. And that's on my first 11th night. That's the kind of autobiography from the Rathco Estate. That's the, the title of the sequence. And I had about 18 or 19 of those poems in there. And before we went on air, Sean just looked at me and opened up the book at the 11th night poems. And he just said, listen, do you know what you're doing? You're explaining your side to us. And you've got to do more of it. You know? Right. But right. that was from the ground, Jerome. There's nothing hoity-toity. It's warts and all. It's the same sort of language and slang and real stuff that you, you get in the weir, you know, just no holds barred, you, you're telling it like you hear, heard it growing up, like you still hear it in your head, um, you're making it the stuff of poetry, you know. Yeah, well, all of that, uh, all of that is, uh, is spot on. Um, 
I I think that it also could apply to most of the United States, uh, and, and yet it right. it does doesn't seem to in in our culture. It's, it seems that we go in the exact opposite direction. I'm just curious, having lived in both places for enough time to have a feeling for them, if you have a sense of why that might be. It's it's hard to know over here. I mean, you will get, you know, the, the ones who become my equivalents, if you like, of the, you know, writing about the, the working class or, you know, kind of speaking up for the working man and woman, um, being inverted commas, you know, writing real stuff. It, it's maybe the likes of, you know, Philip Levine on the one hand. Yeah. Who we lost not that long ago, you know, writing about factory people and all that sort of thing. And then, you know, you have the, the kind of the more, uh, you know, kind of extreme wing where we're no holes barred uh, totally. The likes of George Bukowski, I, I also like, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's easy over here. I think much easier over here, Jerome, to get caught up in a kind of, uh, I guess it's too easy for me to say this, but to get caught up too much in a kind of, uh, whatever poems work on an MA writing program or what American poetry is meant to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and that can become a wee bit, you know, too, too vague and not real for me. Um, I think Brodsky, the great, the great Nobel Prize winning poet, who obviously became an American citizen, as you know, I admire him so much. And, and he, you know, he said in one of his essays that on one hand, America, he loves American poetry and drama and, you know, literature in general so much because it is the song of the individual. It's the song of the atom. It's kind of like the big I made manifest um, from Whitman on, you know. Yeah. Uh, he's very, he was, he was delighted by that, but I find that it can become too big an I and too kind of, I don't know, just a wee bit too artsy-fartsy at times or a wee bit too wishy-washy. Yeah. Um, but not on the streets enough, you know, but maybe that is just the Belfast man in me, Jerome. Well, I, I think, no, I think that's exactly right. And and uh, from Whitman and, and uh, up into the, uh, you know, really Bukowski's, uh, uh, you know, generation, um, that was true. But it does seem like in the last 40 or 50 years that that we've stopped um thinking about the lower classes uh, yeah. uh, maybe because because we have a system in place that that prohibits them from participating in in the arts uh, a, a, as much as they should I, I mean i think england has that kind of setup too to some degree with the oxbridge yeah. model you know that's but uh, but somehow in Ireland it do it doesn't, um, and it seems like the the people who who emerge from Ireland are the ones who are writing about the earth and the and the people and the history of of the place um, yeah. and perhaps the the oppression of the place. Yeah. Totally, and I think back home, you know, we're lucky in that we're we're obviously a small island. Um, if you take even a part of it, I come from the north. You know, it's it's uh, it, it's got. The North alone has got probably the highest grades from schools, even even despite the troubles, um, right. and the whole of the UK and Ireland. And because it's got that, you know, it's very much a community, um, you know, and, and we don't need to write 
uh, whether it's plays or poems or novels for therapy, we just go to the pub for therapy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If I need to write for therapy, I've never written for any form of therapy. And that's fine. I mean, I know a lot of wonderful poets that would, would say they kind of do, but I honestly didn't, you know. And I know a lot of people back home that are really good poets, you know, that uh, wouldn't claim they did it for that reason either. Because we literally did have community and of, of, of the pubs and whatever for, for that sort of support, especially during the troubles. Yeah. But, um, it's just so many of us are from a very normal kind of working class, upper working class background, and you still get good education. I mean, I, I certainly did, even though I was brought up in the hood, basically. I got sent to a, a school, you know, about 15 miles away during the day and came back on the bus and, you know, I had really first class teachers who, that's where I fell in love with poetry. It changed my life at 14, 15. It took me from being somebody who was headed in the very serious trouble uh, into somebody who just wanted to go and buy books by John Keats and people like that. Right. Uh, so, and you, you talk about community. It seems to me that that's one of the large uh, themes or, or issues that McPherson writes about um, in, the, in the seafarer. Um, it's the, 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 the old guys who, um, who have that weekly poker game um, in shining city. It's been much more frayed. The, the characters are disconnected from the church and, and really disconnected from the country and have moved into a, a more urban um, uh, and less personal setting. Uh, and, and this is something he does a lot, even in his new play, uh, Girl from the North Country, which I'm seeing next week in New York, or actually this week, uh, sorry. Uh, even there, um, he set up a boarding house uh, in Minnesota, and the boarding house is kind of a microcosm, I think, of the... Of, of the community uh, that that people either allow themselves to draw inspiration from or don't um, right. is that um, is that all that McPherson talks about or are there other themes that that are, are of interest to you as well you know how I reread the wheel obviously for you you know um, right. you know it's it's I have to base it mainly on the weird room, you know, because that's freshest in my mind. Right. There was kind of a real age to that, this play for me. And I can't remember exactly when it was written. When was it written? It was about 95, I think, 96. Yeah, you know, it surprises me in a sense that way. You know, as I said, what it really struck me as was very much taking me back to the poet Patrick Kavanagh and the Great Hunger. Um, that's really more where I was going with it. And, it kind of almost surprises me that it's the mid-90s. But then in rural Ireland, you know, even bits of Sligo and Leitrim where, where it's meant to be set. Um, yeah, even in the mid-90s, probably even in 2018, you're going to still have characters that are, you know, still lead a fairly remote life, uh, you know, and still very much rural-based. Um, but I, I saw an age to the play, you know, that's what I felt. Um kind of hard to put more in the words, you know, but it, I wouldn't have been surprised if Captain had written it. Let's put it like that. Why does he, why does he so regularly return to the, um, the idea of, of supernatural intrusions in, in his character's lives, lives, do you think? I was really thinking about that um, because it made me, 
I mean, I'll answer it through my own work, I guess, because it made me think of those elements in my own work. Um, you know, because you grew up in that island community, um, you grew up in a real communal community um, where we have a great respect, uh, unlike some other parts of the world, you know, even like unlike America in many ways, in my experience, we have a real respect for the elders in our community. Right. And, you know, and, and learning from them and listening to them and taking stories from them. You know, literally, you know, sitting at their knee is, isn't isn't too much of an exaggeration at times at the at the old hearth. Yeah. And, uh, I think you're you're cloaked in a peculiar mixture of, you know, kind of churchy stuff on one hand, you know, whether it's Catholic or, or different forms of Protestantism. Mystical. You've mystical uh, ritual, yeah. Yeah, and on the other hand, you're very much aware of, you know, how would I put it? You're very much aware of being open to the imagination and to believing in something, for want of a better word, supernatural. And so childhood up, you know, the stories that we had, even being brought up in a really hard line, you know, concrete jungle outside Belfast, um, you're still in Rathcool, uh, even though you're not far from Belfast. You're only 10 minutes walk as a kid through the estate, 10, 15 minutes walk down to Belfast Lock. You're only 10 minutes walk from your front door to the Carmoney Hill. You're only 30 minutes walk up the O'Neill Road to the cave hill that overlooks Belfast. And in the distance, you're seeing the, the Kingdom of Mourne from County Down and right across to Scotland and England. So... Mm -hmm. Very close, even though we might live in urban areas in parts of Ireland, most of them are pretty accessible to, you know, natural to the scenery. Um, you know, so, so growing up as a kid, even in the hood, the concrete hood, I was the stories we had of, you know, our grandfathers or our parents telling us about if you stay out late, the banshee will get you, or you got to watch out for the headless horseman on such and such a road, or. Sure. Like real fairy stories. I mean, we would go up the Camoney Hill as little troubles kids. I was 10 when the troubles broke out. 10, 11, 12, 13, you'd be up at Camoney Hill or down late at night at the sea at Belfast Log or whatever. And it was populated with, uh, you know, everything you could imagine, healthily imagine. Um, and then in my own work, I found that, you know, my, my my grandmother was famous for, and this is probably true in almost every family. I bet you they have a same, similar story, Jerome. Right. My, my Presbyterian grandmother, for example, I, I'm very mixed heritage, but was brought up Presbyterian. I didn't find out until I was 40. Or, sorry, until I was uh, 18 and my father was 40, that he was actually a Catholic from South Armagh. He never knew that. That's another story. Yeah. But, um, my grandmother, who I knew well um, and, and loved dearly, she was famous as somebody who had serious premonitions. And she was a, a real, you know, kind of Bible-honoring Presbyterian who went to her church every Sunday, three times every Sunday. And, uh, but she would foresee, she would tell us, I, I wrote a poem in the 11th night section, it's actually the first one that starts, it called Bones and Blood. And, you know, it's about one particular incident where she kept telling us that she was dreaming every night about seeing like some kind of building there were children and adults but mainly children and that they were all suddenly covered with black stuff and she didn't know what the black stuff was but mm -hmm. she 
that something terrible was going to happen. And it used to really upset her that she couldn't go to a television station and say, warn everybody, because she couldn't tell you exactly what it was. Right, sure. A week later, the Aberfan coal disaster happened in Wales, where the slag heap slipped down the mountain over an elementary school and killed the kids and teachers. Yeah. With black dust. And so part of that first poem, The Eleventh Night Sequence, I write about that. Um, and then reading the weird again, I thought Jerome and his folk would laugh. I even have a poem in my last book, Hickory Station, called The After Image, which is about, you know, a man that I wrote the Moongate sonnets for, and which are probably things I'm most proud of. And uh, Billy, I met him when I was 36, he was 76. And I lived beside him out in the country in Isla McGee in an old row of blacksmith's cottages. Right. Uh, uh, he became like a hero mentor to me, you know, a man that worked in the shipyard all his life. But, you know, the poems would let you know them and get some of how deep that was. But about, I think it's about eight weeks, seven weeks after he died, I have three Irish kids who are growing up and a little American boy, but two of my Irish kids were, you know, had been born and had grown up a bit at that point. And we were all looking out the cottage window, and Billy would normally go on a Sunday morning after his church from the cottage window to his outhouse in his, his suit with his tie up and his nice clothes to get yeah. us a, a shovel of coal. And we would always wave at us through the window if we were there. And, you know, my two kids will back it up, you know, about seven weeks after we buried him. We were just innocently in the living room of our house. Something caught her eye, we looked out, and it was Billy going past the window like he was just kind of hovering. And the three of us just were in shock, and I actually wept, you know. And so I wrote a little sonnet in Hickory Station called The After Image. So I don't expect people to believe that. My two oldest kids, yeah. eight and 32, and I don't expect you to believe it. But we saw it. <laughs> yeah. Is there something uh, is there something valuable about believing it, uh, whether or not it's true? I think that it's certainly. I think it's very healthy. I can only speak, I guess, personally. I think it's very healthy in the sense that you are open to, you know, it's kind of like the realm of the human imagination catching up with what scientists are already discovering. Yeah, which is that we don't know very much. And that we're, we're confined to just a few dimensions, not even all that we know about at the moment. So, you know, a lot of it's obviously to do with memory and who knows what it's to do with. But I think that openness to what Haney would have called that kind of, you know, crediting marvels yeah. um, is, is really significant. And I think, just speaking personally for me, you know, it's not just that I love Seamus and love his work, you know, obviously, but I can really see how as he got older, he went back to crediting Marvels even more as a way of understanding, you know, contemporary life and your own point of life. Yeah. Um, I think it's healthy, you know, it, obviously within the weir, in, in the end, it's put across as, you know, listen, don't listen to us, we're just rabbiting on about these things, we're not trying to scare you, we don't want you to be scared. Um, no. And then McPherson kind of clearly uses it, I think, as, well, the biggest ghost in this story is really the guy at the end and, and yeah. the loss of the girl that he should have followed to Dublin. You know, that's the real ghost story. Right. Right. Despite his uh, his insistence that that's the one 
a story that isn't a ghostly story. Um, well, um, tell me, uh, just to wrap up, uh, I know you're doing some other things, and I, I see from your biography that you're in, involved in a band as well. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, Canteron, I way back, you know, I mean, I'm 60 this year, you know, so when I say way back, it's way back now. <laughs> but, um, you know, at college, I met a guy called Padraig McGuinness, who's actually not too well at the moment. He's my uh, one of my best living friends at home. And uh, he... Uh, you know, played the music we met. He was from the Catholic side of things. I was from the small P Protestant side of things. And we just met first day at University of Ulster with the Ulster Poly back then and became friends immediately over a pint of Guinness. And he just said, do you play music? I said, I play a bit of guitar. He said, well, you're, you're changing the mandolin because I'm the guitar player. Uh, <laughs> uh, we met another guy who I played rugby against, uh, who I almost killed in my last rugby match against. And I was a <laughs> I was a serious rugby player during um, right. Stephen McFarland, who became a great friend, and he played bass, but we talked to him into playing fiddle. He became brilliant. Ended up, we had a wonderful six-piece band and played for years throughout college. Wow. Uh, up some serious bands back home and all of that. But I hadn't played in so long, and then I met, uh, I was in Barnes & Noble here back in 2005, I think, and... Uh, a guy with his daughter in his arms overheard me talking to Molly, and he walked over and said, that's a Belfast accent. And I said, so is that. <laughs> and we laughed. His name's Alan Mounds, and he's the guy I play the music with. From that point on, we became friends. Him and his family, extended family, live over here in Hickory and Granite Falls. And uh, we just became friends. And then he, he's a real musician. He's an extraordinary singer-songwriter with his own CDs and you know, M.M. Uh, &M classical guitar. He's a most amazing guitar player and singer-songwriter. But he just said to me at one point, look, what about, I'd love to get you back playing the mandolin, the Irish music, teach me some of those Irish songs and whatever, and, and let's play for our heart's sake and uh, pay some bills and have some fun. And So we, we wanted to get a fancy Gaelic name or something like that, Jerome, but everybody kept calling us, you know, like, are you going to see the Belfast boys? And uh, so we looked right. at um, well, I guess we just have to call ourselves the Belfast Boys because sure. everybody calls us here. And we've done a CD. We've got another one that we're thinking about because he's got a recording studio now. He works with with a friend of Hickory, and we play. We don't ask to play. We just get invited to play, and we love it. Where, you know? can, uh, where can one get that CD? Um, well, I'm, I'm sure it's all on iTunes and all that. But Jerome, you could get it from. From me or Alan, I mean, I keep them in the house. We sell them at gigs and all of that, you know. Right, right. So they can get it personally from me. A lot. They could go onto the Belfast Boys Facebook page, you know, where we load up where we play and things like that. It's just yeah. Belfast Boys on Facebook. We do have a a website as well, but we really haven't had time to attend to that much. We use the Facebook much more. Tell me about it. Uh... So uh, okay, uh, good, uh, Adrian. We uh, we uh, appreciate very much your your uh, joining us for this. Uh, um, we hope you'll be able to get down to see our production, which runs through December sixteenth. It is Connor McPherson's "The Weir," and it's our second go round with this play. Awesome. Uh, the first uh, production was in uh, two thousand, so eighteen years ago, okay. and. Um, 
and I love it dearly, and I just want to listen to it over and over again. So, um, so if you can make it down, we would appreciate it. In the meantime, we'll check out the Belfast Boys Facebook page, and uh, and we appreciate uh, having you here in our state. And thank you, Jerome. Do check out the new book, the new and selected poems, the strangest state. <laughs> okay. And that's that's also available through the Facebook page. Available at Press Fifty Three. Get it out of Winston Salem, and you'll get, you know, they can get it from Press Fifty Three. They can get it on Amazon. They'll get it in, you know, it's in Barnes and Noble here, but I'm not sure where where else it is. Right. Uh, I'm really but proud. Amazon has it. Uh, Amazon carries it. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you, big man. As we say back home, cheers. Thank you for listening. Our production of Connor McPherson's The Weir will run from Thursday, November 29th through Sunday, December 16th. To purchase tickets or for more information, visit our website at burningcoal.org or give us a call at 919-834-4001.